Well, I'd also like to welcome you to Lakeside. Uh, Today, we're going to begin a series on the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. A parable is a a short story. Uh, It's a simple story that is, at one and the same time, accessible for almost anyone to hear and and kind of track along with what's going on. Uh, But though they're short and simple, they contain profound truth, and there's multiple ways that we can allow them to apply to our lives and challenge our own hearts. And Jesus told several of these, and one of the reasons that he told them, we'll see in our passage today as we begin, but then consider uh, over 10 parables over the next several weeks through the Gospel of Matthew, is that it actually represented a shift in his ministry. That he started telling these stories because he was increasingly surrounded by people who did not like what he was saying. They didn't want to hear what he was saying, and they didn't want other people to listen to what he was saying. And so he knew that he didn't have a neutral audience, but in fact that he had a hostile audience. And so he needed to tell these stories that at one, at one level communicated truth to those who were eager and excited to hear, but also had to protect himself against those who were not. Uh, I have uh, friends who serve in parts of the world where they're not free to share their faith with other people. Uh, One of them uh, in particular, he's back in the States now, but because he'd been in a part of the world where there's not a lot of freedom to share his faith with others, when he writes about his experiences, he writes under a pseudonym, a a name that is not his, the first or the last name. And so you could go up and, and read various things that he said, but he's specifically protecting his identity so that he doesn't get anyone that he loves and cares about in trouble where he had been serving. He has to write in code. He has to have a little bit of cover for the sake of those he loves. That's what Jesus is experiencing as he starts to tell these parables. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 13. If you're using a Bible provided for you, it's on page 768. And we're going to read the first 23 verses of Matthew chapter 23. And then we'll unpack this initial simple but profound story that he tells about a sower. Matthew chapter 23. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. And since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, 
You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. And that's where we'll conclude our reading for today. So we see in our passage that even the disciples themselves begin to ask Jesus why he's all of a sudden shifting in his teaching. And the reality is that in Christ's life, the love that he is communicating to the world is actually opposed. There are people who are increasingly against him. If we would have started Matthew's gospel from the beginning, Matthew tells the story of Jesus quickly with helping us to see that not everyone is excited at his birth. There was a wicked King Herod who did not want a new king to come and who was willing to take even innocent life in the hopes that he would end the life of Jesus when he was born. And then being warned in a dream, they flee to Egypt. And then even in coming back, they realize Jerusalem is still not safe. And so they resettle in Nazareth. And from the very beginning of Christ's life all the way up into his ministry, there's this sense that not everyone's excited, not everyone's thrilled, not everyone's rolling out the red carpet and welcoming him. There is real opposition going on. And as Jesus began his public ministry, as he was healing people and showing them love, he was doing it mostly. He made his home in Capernaum on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. But the word was spreading so much that people were coming from Jerusalem and from other towns to see who is this person and what is he doing and what does this mean for us? And as his popularity began to grow, people couldn't deny what was going on. Who is this person who can do these amazing things, who can heal people, who can miraculously feed them, who can even raise the dead, and then who can heal on the Sabbath day? He taught the Sermon on the Mount, and when everyone listened to him preach, they said, who preaches like this? Who has such authority like this? And as his popularity grew, others who could not deny what was happening started questioning how he was doing it. So if your Bible's still open, go back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 34. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 33, uh, just to give you a flavor. It says, And when the demon had been cast out, and the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, 
he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So here there's a group who can't deny what's going on and what everyone's seeing in front of their eyes. So rather than fighting that battle, their accusation is that Jesus must be doing this by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. Yeah, there's, there's power here. There are wonders and signs. But this has to be darkness. And then if you look in chapter 10 in verse 24, Jesus then says to all of his followers, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? This is about as strong as an accusation as it gets. To accuse someone of being the prince of demons is to say that they are now supposed to be executed. The Pharisees saying that Jesus is doing this by the prince of demons in their law and tradition is to say he is guilty of a capital crime. And it says, if you would just read it straight through, they start to make plans for how to do that. They don't want him to keep healing people. They don't want him to keep casting out demons. They don't want him to keep feeding the thousands. And so as the opposition increases, they start to call what is good bad, what is light dark. And so we as Christians believe that in Christ coming, he is the light of the world come, and because of him, we have joy and hope. But for them, they're accusing him of being darkness of spreading what is wicked. And so he's opposed by them. And it's because of that that now he increasingly, so when it says, and then if you go to verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 14, you'll see it says there, this is now because of a healing that he did on the Sabbath day. In verse 14, but now the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And so Jesus challenges them in verse 24, knowing their hearts. It says, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And so knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divide itself is laid to waste, and no city or house divided against itself can stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom Stand. And then after Christ rebukes them, some of them say, okay, well, give us more signs. Give us more evidence. And in verse 38, he says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to give more signs or wonders. If you were just interested in more information, you have all the information you could want. I have shown who I am. I've shown the power that I have and the love that I have. And how gracious I am. And you're, you're calling it blasphemy. You're saying it's from darkness. You're calling me the prince of demons. No, no, no. I'm not going to do another sign for you. The only sign you're going to get from here on out, he says, is the sign of Jonah. Which they don't fully understand what that means at that point, but eventually they'll come to understand it. But he realizes if he does more, they're only going to oppose him more. And so 
there's now a guarded caution on his part to not bring about that opposition on them suddenly. And so when we read at the beginning of our chapter, verse 13, that same day Jesus went out and sat beside the sea and began to speak to them in parables. What day? The day they called him Beelzebub. The day they said that he's from darkness. That same day, he gathers a crowd and the crowd gets big enough that he has to go out into the water and into a boat and they're on the shore and he starts to teach them in this way. And it's just a good point of application for us to realize even in our own efforts to seek to love people, on many days it's hard to wake up and have a posture that isn't selfish and actually desire to love people. But when we overcome our selfishness and we're willing to love people, many times we think, well, if we just do that and if we love people, then it'll go well or they'll receive it well. And so many times that doesn't happen. That when we overcome our own selfishness and reach out to others and do things for them, it's opposed or it's misunderstood or it's rejected. And then that adds a whole other level of frustration because then why, why didn't I just start the day selfish? <laughs> why didn't I just look after myself and just care about my own needs? Except if we're willing to consider the example of Christ, he would challenge us and say, why did you ever expect that in the first place? If I was opposed, if I was rejected, shouldn't you expect the same thing? And so not to be discouraged from ever loving people, but to realize there is genuine opposition in this world. Not everyone is excited about the kingdom of light breaking in. Some people will actually call the kingdom of light the kingdom of darkness. Some people will describe what you're doing as loving as hateful. That, that is a reality. If they called me that, they're likely going to call you that. That's what he said to every one of his disciples. And so if we know that, that the true and genuine love of God will be opposed, it will be rejected, to keep on doing it, we need to encourage one another. <laughs> we do need to be a community that encourages one another on this journey because love is hard. <laughs> loving people who aren't like us are hard and loving people who don't care about us or our way of life is hard. And if we can acknowledge that on the front end, then we need to say, okay, now we need to think of ways that we can encourage each other so that when that rejection happens and that opposition comes, we don't just step back and say, oh, I guess I'm going to choose the selfish way of life. I'm not going to try to love anyone anymore. But we can encourage each other. Uh, this past week in our home, uh, we've had about five weeks now of time with uh, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law who live in Paraguay. And they've been up here with their three kids for their summer break in the middle of our winter. And it's been such a good time. The things that you can't plan for, which is weather or physical health, we were pretty fortunate and blessed that none of our kids got sick or their kids in a way that we had to quarantine from each other. And we got to make the most of five weeks of them being in the country. The bittersweet reality of that is when we say bye to them, we usually say bye to them for at least two years. And two years is a lot of time, but it's especially a lot of time if you're only two years old. So they're coming on this trip was the first time they're meeting our youngest son. And so as we're at the airport on Friday saying goodbye, they're all talking about, you know, how old they're going to be the next time they see each other and what they might be able to do that they can't do right now. But we actually went to the airport because for them, 
still in some of the airports in South America, it's fairly common that people go with you to the airport and that's where they say goodbye to you or they welcome you at the airport. Used to be like that more here in America, but now the security is so far out that for most people, uh, they don't you know, hang out with you in the airport because they can't go very far with you. But we said, no, we want to do this. We want to take our kids to go and to bid them farewell because we don't know when is the next time that we'll get to see them. And then as soon as it happened, there was such a goodness to it as they're hugging each other and taking pictures. But by choosing to do that and to go say goodbye there, it also meant it brought closer home the pain of the separation. Because as soon as they got down that security hallway and you couldn't see them anymore, you're just depressed. You're like, what is it going to be like the next time we see each other? And uh, our oldest is the most uh, sensitive of our kids. Uh, he just lost it. He's just heartbroken. Like, yeah, we, we can't see them anymore, and we don't know when they'll see them again. It's just hard. So when we got home, we were having like a, a snack, and it was just the two of us. And I said to him, like, I know that that was really hard to do. Because by going there and not just saying bye at grandma's house so it felt like every other goodbye, by being there, you knew it was a different goodbye and it hurts. It's hard, but I'm so glad you did it and you did a great job. And I wanted to encourage him because of how hard I know that it was for him to do it. And so I just said to him, a lot of people know things are going to be hard and so then they just don't show up. They don't want to feel the pain of what you felt when you stopped seeing them, and so they just don't come. I said, I don't want you in life to not show up just because it's hard. And he looked up, and he goes, thanks, Dad. <laughs> the day before, when I was trying to think of what to do to sort of say goodbye well, uh, I wanted to get uh, my brother-in-law's favorite ice cream is my favorite ice cream, which is Mitchell's ice cream. And we had tried to work out going to see, uh, going up to one of the stores to eat it in person. It just never worked out in our schedule. And so when I looked up, where could I buy this locally in Akron? So I don't have to drive 40 miles to go get it. I finally discovered that I can locally at Mustard Seed buy Mitchell's ice cream. I didn't know that. That was a good day on Thursday when I found that out. Because I'm like, this is going to be hard. It's going to be bittersweet. It's going to be emotional. So knowing that, I want to do something that's encouraging. I bought so much ice cream, they gave me a 10% discount without asking. <laughs> Seriously, she was, she's like, this is going to last you a while. I was like, no, I think it'll be gone by tomorrow. Like, it's a lot of people, we're going to enjoy all of this. But again, I don't want to run from it, but knowing it's hard, I do want to think of ways to add joy to it, to, to make it memorable and to be encouraging. We need to be that as a body of believers for one another. Are you sitting next to someone who's trying to say no to selfishness and love other people do you know how hard that is for them do you know how much they would appreciate just someone saying I know it's hard and I just want to tell you I think you're doing a great job and if you need me to pick you up a coffee every now and again or a donut I don't know what's encouraging to you I don't know what your love language is can I do that because I, I, I can't take away the hardness <laughs> I can't make everyone love you. Someone's going to reject you. Some of your days are going to feel impossible, and I can't take the pain away. But how can I encourage you? How can I support you? We need to be that for one another. And so Jesus, experiencing this regular rejection, tells this parable of the sower, of a sower going out and throwing all this seed. And one of the main points of this parable is the impartial love of God. 
He throws it on four different types of ground, which if we don't have a sort of Middle Eastern context, we look at it and say, why are you wasting so much seed? Why are you throwing it not on good ground? Uh, but you can't picture Ohio or Indiana farmland here. All ground is rocky in Israel. Uh, there isn't the amount of farmland that we have. Some people's property is entirely on a hill and it's slanted. And there's not much division between where vegetables will grow and where uh, it's just going to be hard enough that that becomes a path. But the whole point of the parable is not to decide ahead of time where you should make your investment and then put everything there. The whole point is that the sower just throws it everywhere. There is this impartial casting of the seed. No prejudging to say, this is where I should spend my time or not, but just this generous God who's willing to do it everywhere, which if we've been reading Matthew's gospel from the beginning, we realize it's a wonderful thing that he does it. Because if he would have prejudged who was going to believe or not believe based on their background or their education, you likely would have been wrong. As you read Matthew's gospel, the people that are coming to Jesus for healing and saying they believe in him and they trust him, a centurion comes to Jesus and says, you could heal, and you don't even have to come and do it in person. You could just say it from here, and I know it would happen. And Jesus is like, wow, that's true, I can. <laughs> and that you believe that, it's amazing. A Canaanite woman comes to him and pleads for mercy. And the Pharisees and the leaders who had the most amount of education and the proximity to the Old Testament that you would have thought would have been the good soil that fruit would have been born in, reject him. They're rock hard. They have no desire to pay attention to what he's saying or to listen to him. And so we see in the unfolding of the gospel that this impartial love of God means there is starting to be fruit growing in all kinds of places that you might not have thought fruit would grow. Matthew, the writer, is one of those people. He was a tax collector. When Jesus invited him to be one of his followers, it made people question and say, you can't really be the Messiah. How could you hang out with people like Matthew? The Messiah wouldn't hang out with people like Matthew. But Matthew is willing to follow. He's willing to be a disciple. The Pharisees, who should have been willing to follow and should have been willing to be a disciple, proved out that, no, they weren't. And so the sower is impartial in casting the seed. And wherever fruit is born, there's a joyfulness and an excitement at the response that exists. We also see the patient love of God. For some, the first type of soil is just, there's, it takes no root, it's immediately gone, the birds snatch away the seed. But then it describes two other types of soil where there's initially some positive fruit, and for the first one, it is, it is received with joy, but the moment there's tribulation or persecution, it fails. And then the third one is that there's fruit, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches take it away. And so this is a simple story, but again, it's deep enough for us to enter into it and to say, in God's patience toward me, and life is full of surprises, 
would it be hardship and persecution that might undo some of the good work that God is doing in my life? Am I following him after him just as long as things go well and as soon as things don't go well, I'm done? Or there's temptations in the other direction where things are going so well, I don't really think I need him anymore. I got a lot of encouragement from people. I'm getting a lot of affirmation in what I'm doing. And so I know I needed him at one point, but it feels like I've kind of outgrown him. And so there's this period of time where it seemed like there was fruit that was helpful and meaningful. And when you realize, as Jesus tells the story, there's, there's none of us that are outside of the scope of the target audience to be humbled by it. If the Pharisees rejected him straight out, and others will follow him just until it hurts, and then they'll stop. And others will follow him until it's going well, and then they'll say they don't need him anymore. Where am I in this story? That's the challenge that a parable is supposed to do for us. Am I one of those? So educated and determined in what is right that I won't even listen to him? Or open to it until it gets hard? Or I'll use them until I don't need them? hopefully I'm not any of those and hopefully you're not any of those but we also need to be a community of people that challenges each other in this way to say none of those ultimately experience the fullness of what God desires in his patience he wants the fruit in our lives to work out over a long period of time and that the fruit is not taken away by persecution or suffering and it's not taken away by the cares of this world or the deceitfulness of riches but that it is good fruit that continues to bear more fruit. So the quote on the back of your handout says, genuine faith will produce genuine changes in your life. What God wants to do with us, he wants to do over a lifetime and then for eternity. He loves us that kind of a patient way. He's not looking just to get us to do something today and then move on from it. He wants our hearts he wants our soil to be the type of soil that then he can work in and keep on working in and keep on working. And then we also, after this story is told and many others and it moves on to Christ himself, no longer couching anything in secret code or parables. And the rejection comes fully against him where the people who called him Beelzebub actually put him to death we see this wonderful miracle of his redeeming love. That in the same way that we're surprised that his true love would be opposed, he continues to live out his life in such a way that when that opposition comes and they fully and finally reject him on the cross, that in ways they don't even know, by putting him on the cross, he's offering to the world redemption even to the very people who opposed him. It's his body broken for them, his blood shed for them, him on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And when he rises from the again, that's the sign of Jonah. And that's the sign that tells them not simply that he's powerful and a miracle worker and can do things no one's ever done before or teach in a way that no one's taught before, 
but it's now the definitive sign that says he loves me like no one's ever loved me before. He's loved me in spite of my rejection. He's loved me in spite of my ignorance. He's loved me in spite of the fact that the deceitfulness of riches or the cares of this world or suffering as it's come can so easily knock me off my track. And that's how he loves them. That's how he loves you and me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a simple story that tells us of your impartial and patient and redeeming love that you had to speak in such a way as to be wise towards those who were hostile against you to challenge your disciples to consider where they really stood before you to warn them of what would come in their own journey but that you did it all because of your unconditional love for us we thank you that your purpose and desire for us is to produce fruit in our lives and to produce the type of fruit that continues to produce more fruit that we can be expectant of change and growth and maturity that can happen that if we are open to you and allow you to have your way with us things can be different we pray that you would help us to be a community of believers that encourages one another in this journey to not run from the hard things or deny them but to find ways to face them and to find joy in all of them in the same way that you did it's in your name that we pray amen